You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. On October 22, 2022, history was made as New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced the appointment and swore in Laura Cavanaugh as Commissioner of the New York City Fire Department. Commissioner Cavanaugh is the 34th Commissioner to lead the department and the first woman. At 40, she's also the youngest fire commissioner to serve in over a century. In this role, she oversees the nation's largest fire department, including the agency's 17,000 employees and $2 billion budget. She also advocates for first responders at the city, state, and federal level. She's been a key leader in the agency's response to major incidents, spearheaded key policy initiatives for the department, directed the firefighter recruitment campaign that yielded the most diverse applicant pool in FDNY history, paved the way for technological innovation, and created fire safety programs that installed and distributed smoke alarms in the most at-risk neighborhoods. Before city service, Commissioner Kavanaugh worked in management and campaign consulting for nonprofits, community-based organizations, and unions to advance their organizational goals. Commissioner, there is so much to discuss. So starting with, thank you for joining us today. Sure. I and was. Welcome to the show. Nice to see you. So let's start with congratulations on this historical appointment. You started acting fire commissioner in mid-February last year, 2022, when Commissioner Nigro retired. Prior to that, though, you were the first deputy commissioner and also held other leadership roles prior to first deputy commissioner. So why don't we start with you explaining how you think those roles prepared you for this historic appointment? You know more than most people. It's been quite a journey. We've been through much of it together. I could not have possibly imagined when I joined that this is where I would be. I'm actually not sure I can still quite wrap my head around it. I think that might take a while. I love the job and I feel comfortable in it, but thinking about that journey, I think will take a, a longer time to figure out what that means. But certainly I could not have been here if I didn't do all of those other roles. You know, the fire department is unique. There's nothing like it. It is large, it is complicated, it is a family and being able to learn pieces of it at a time and to meet folks like you who could help me understand the different pieces of it, but also share their love of the job and why it's so unique and interesting, why it's built the way it is. There's no way I could do this job without that. Those are fundamental building blocks for me. There are many avenues you could have taken prior to coming into the FDNY. What made you say this is where you wanted to why, be? Why FDNY? Yeah. That is true, but I would say, I think it's two things. One, I've always trusted my gut on jobs. And so rather than say, this is where I should go, or here's the five-year plan, I've never had one. Mm -hmm. I always knew that when something felt right, or in the inverse, when it felt wrong, it was time to leave. When it felt right, you should take it, even if you weren't sure, or people would say that wasn't the best career path for you. And when the FDNY was suggested to me, you know, that bell rang. I knew somehow, some way that would work out well, even if I didn't understand at the time why I was picking what a lot of people would have seen as an unusual route. And I think that's turned out to be true. The FDNY is even greater than I could have imagined. Did you have any trepidation about the type of work that the fire department does and it being so different from what you had done prior? I didn't. I always feel like I want to make sure I do well. So how am I going to learn a place that I know is really different 
from me and my experience was something I was really conscious about, but that's probably a good thing. I think it's right to know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. But I certainly didn't fear what we could say is graphic nature of the work, nor did I fear the unknown. I like a challenge. I kind of like a chaotic environment. I enjoy something that might be intimidating and taking it on. And so to me, the fire department's work itself was actually quite interesting for that reason. It is important, it is dangerous and sad at times, as you know all too well. To me, that made it more interesting, not less. And I think that fits my personality. So as, as you take on the role of acting fire commissioner back in February of 2022, there's no way to see that we were going to experience some rapid succession of real tragedies, line of duty injuries and line of duty deaths that happened quickly in your new tenure, almost rapid succession too. How do you feel that that impacted you and you were still in this acting position on top of it? Every time we lose someone, it's heartbreaking. When we are the ones who are there telling the family, that is especially heartbreaking. It just leaves a little scar on your heart that you're never gonna recover from, and I think about them every day. Maybe the only thing I would say is because it's so important, I didn't stop to think I'm acting or what does this mean to me or how am I gonna do this? What needed to be done was very obvious to me. We had to be there 100% for the families. Things kept happening those first few months. Not only did we have two line of duties in those first few months, we also had the subway shooting, the house explosion. I mean, it really did not provide any time to absorb, I think, what was happening. I try to think about the mental health part of that, not just for me, but for you and the whole team, which is we're all affected and we need to take a pause at some point and make sure that we're okay and that we are thinking about those things and for better or worse, I think that did allow us to be there 100%. There simply wasn't time to think about why. So you get the word that you're finally being appointed. What was that like? How did you feel about it? I mean, I felt amazing, but I think I felt at that point I was doing the job. And I spoke to the mayor so often, and, and we talk about our shared vision for the department, that I almost didn't believe him when he said it. I made him repeat himself, because to me, I was just sort of had gotten into the rhythm of the job. It was obviously very exciting, but I also don't think that it fully hit me in that moment. It's such a big, important, special thing. I think it'll take a while to really absorb it. The work makes sense to me day to day, but thinking of like the historic nature of that, mm -hmm. oh, that one will take me a while. But it is, I was definitely happy. And even though it took some time, by that time it happened, I felt like it was right. And I think a lot of other people felt that too. You know, that day was able to be joyful with some real certainty from, from everybody involved that the right fit was there. So, you know, there's always an upside even to a long journey. Prior to the acting piece of your tenure and now being fire commissioner, you were responsible for many different initiatives. And obviously the most recent and probably profound would be our response to COVID. How do you think that these types of initiatives and policies help prepare you to be fire commissioner? And what did you learn from these experiences? There are a few parts of it. I think one is you bond as a team. You and I already knew one another, but I didn't know Chief Bonsignor as well before we went into COVID. Those moments, you know, you come out of that, as you well know, really understanding the people you work with. And so I think much like probably happens in the field, you know, those moments of greatest stress mm -hmm. really bring you together and help you really develop a 
bond that's deeper than you typically get at work. I think that's definitely true of COVID. It's true just not of not only of the executive staff, but of my team who was with me. As you know, like the streets were empty and people weren't in offices. And so often the only people I would see in a given day was, you know, my aide, my XO and you guys. And, you know, we'd be going around the city checking in on folks. We have to remember at the time we had no idea where COVID was going. We were hit first mm -hmm. in the U.S. And so those are really bonding moments in a really significant way. I think those things are all very good, very important lessons for stepping into a role like this is understanding what happens when everything you're doing gets pushed aside and the only thing you can focus on is a major emergency. And in that case, not for a day or a week, but for months. If not years, we could probably yeah, say. Yeah, and certainly the, the first two months easily, we spent creating the policies yeah. while navigating yeah. the crisis at the same time. Yeah. You have to have the flexibility. I remember many times saying to you on a phone at 11 or 12 o'clock at night, yeah. we've got to decide this right now. We don't have the luxury of waiting. And, and often we'd wake up the next morning, be talking at 5 a.m., and the state or the feds would have said, now there's a new policy. So what we decided at midnight now had to be re-litigated. So it really is a lesson in, in how quickly you have to learn to move and, and how flexible you have to be. And I think also about that there are many crises in which there's no right answer. Mm -hmm. You know, COVID was very searing in that way that we had incredible plans. I think we had a great team. I think we have a great agency and great responders. But at the end of the day, there were many days where what we thought we knew about COVID would change once, twice, three times in a day. And so you simply couldn't always know if you were making the right choice because you wouldn't even have all the information, right? You wouldn't know. There were points where we didn't know how it spread. So it's a very big lesson in planning and preparation and training and how important that is, but also how flexible you have to be at the end of the day because every emergency ultimately will introduce something different. And even for a department that's gone through so much COVID was unusual in the extension of the emergency. And so that was what was so interesting talking to you and Chief Bonsignor at the time who had been through 9-11 and Sandy. Even you guys were noting that the extended nature of COVID was the new element that you guys, even with your decades of experience, weren't used to. Right. So that was also a lesson that something will always be new about a crisis that confronts us. Mm. Speaking of our earlier experiences, when you joined the department in 2014, you were a big part of developing the policies around our very first crisis of the tenure, which was the Ebola outbreak. So talk to us a little bit about what your role was during the policy creation responding to Ebola and how that informed maybe some of the policy decisions that had to be made for COVID. It's crazy to me that that seems so small in comparison to COVID, right? right? That we're talking about Ebola as like the more minor, easier, far easier thing to deal with. That's sort of an interesting look back. I do think it was very helpful in understanding all the pieces. You know, I wasn't in as prominent of a role as I was once COVID hit, but that also meant that I had a better chance to just see all the pieces moving, whether it was the Office of Medical Affairs, EMS, whether we're talking about like the dispatch system and how we would know if an Ebola call was coming in or talking about how we'd respond or talking about how we'd communicate that. It really gave me a good chance to understand how extensive anything that the FDNY does that might even seem 
simple or easy because our members make it look simple and easy. Or I think also in public, what you're seeing are the first responders as you should. You're seeing them respond to that call, but it makes you realize how many people's influence, help and decisions need to go into supporting those first responders being there with the right equipment, knowing that that person might have Ebola. It takes an army really of decisions, of conversations and headquarters, of resources, budget, and then talking to the public about what does this mean? And yes, it's very serious, but it's also gonna be okay. So I think it was just a lesson in how many people are involved in getting to that point where what turned out to be one patient properly identified as being a potential patient, our members were properly donned to go treat them and the hospital was ready to receive him. Everybody was And nobody safe. got, yeah, and none of the responders or the doctors got sick. That was the goal. And it was successful, but it shows you how much goes into making that happen. Tell us a little bit about prior to coming to the FDNY, your work in management and consulting and campaigns. How do you think all of those combined have managed to propel you to where you are today? Yeah, I think the theme I would say through my whole career and certainly those jobs, which seem so different from this one, mm. I actually don't see them as very different. The reason being is you, when you do that kind of work, one, you have to be good in chaos. Mm. You have to be good under pressure. You also learn to do a little bit of everything very quickly. You know, you have to be good at operations and good at public relations and good at strategy and managing people. It requires like a, a really well-rounded skill set. And I think you need to be well-rounded to be a leader. But also the biggest thing is actually, you know, you are picked up and dropped into a new problem, essentially, every few weeks or every few months. And so it might be a union that gets put in front of you saying, you know, we're having an issue with this negotiation and we need a strategy. Or it might be that you're sent to a neighborhood in the Bronx or in Queens to run a campaign and maybe one that hasn't been going well. And mm. so they're going to say to you, you need to not only get to learn this problem, but this geography, this neighborhood, these people, so you can develop a strategy. Basically, from scratch, you haven't met these folks before, you haven't worked here before, and you need to develop a strategy, which means getting to know very quickly everyone around you and what the nature of the problem is and mm. develop a plan going forward. And I did that over and over and over and over. You know, it wasn't just once or twice. It's dozens, probably hundreds of times. It's actually good managerial training, but it's also very specific to the FDNY, which is spread out geographically across the city right. and where the problems that come to us in Metro Tech are very different every day. Sometimes they're legal problems, sometimes they're policy issues, sometimes they're operational. Right. And that, right. you know, sort of having to bounce around, right. even though the work seems so different, I think maybe the, my way of thinking was formed early mm -hmm. by those experiences. It's really important to me to build like really strong bonds between the FDNY and the community. They already exist for the most part in my experience. It's so interesting and special to me when I show up at a station on the weekend and they have the local explorers from that local school, you know, just doing different exercises. And the lieutenant there says, oh, well, I invited them over because I went to that high school. You know, that's my high school and I'm passionate about it. So I think it's already there, mm -hmm. but I think just growing it is so important because I think it's a two-way street and each benefits from that, right? Our members are part of that community. And so the more the community members know who they are and understand the mission and how they can help them and keep them safe, the better for our members. And for our members, they can better serve the people in their community by understanding that community. So, you know, building 
those community connections is always going to be important to me. The organizing basis of my career and my life is to be in a community and serve a community. Let's talk about the uh, firefighter recruitment campaign, uh, because that's really one of the first big initiatives that you worked on after joining the FDNY. That really came naturally to me. You know, a recruitment campaign is very much like the work that I used to do in campaigns and politics. I mean, almost down to a T. It really made sense to me. And even, you know, our recruitment cycles are on four-year cycles. We go out to communities to talk to people about how great the job is. It just made a lot of sense. One of the hardest things usually when you're working in the realm of outreach is how good it is what you're trying to talk to people about. The FDNY is the easiest thing I've ever had to talk to anyone about because it is great. So to me, not only did it feel like this was a natural part of my skill set, I also thought like I kind of got lucky that I'm talking about something that's very easy to discuss. Mm. And our members are great at talking about how much they love their job. I felt very much like I knew what needed to happen. Um, and it, it's easy to talk about the FDNY. That is a good point. <laughs> People know and love the department. It's about talking to them about what it means to be a member here. And what it takes. Yeah. A lower acceptance rate than Harvard. I like to put that fun fact out there. We have a lower acceptance rate than Harvard. So it's not an easy place to get a job. And I think helping people understand the journey to getting here is that's the really important part of a recruitment campaign. Because it takes a lot of commitment. Yeah. A lot of yeah. your time is spent preparing to be able to be successful. Time, energy, you know, physical commitment. It's not an easy job. It's a tough job. And it's a tough job to get. And it's a tough job to do. So I think that was really where we had to focus in is making sure people understand if they say they're interested, what that actually means. I would also say, you know, it's interesting if you go out to the recruitment events, because I think this is a unique job. It isn't a job for everyone because it is dangerous and it is unusual. It's interesting, though, because what I would see when we go to these recruitment events is you can see the future firefighter. You can see a young person who you put like a hose line in their hands or they're carrying a chainsaw or they're doing these things and the light bulb goes on, then they love it. They don't just like it. They're really into it. And you're like, that's a future firefighter. I can tell from this moment on, like they're hooked. They're going to put in the time and the effort. It's good to really show people what the job is up front. Because if it's not for you, I think you're going to know that pretty soon mm. because it's such an unusual job and such a physical job. But if it is for you, you see the light bulb go off in, in young people's minds who clearly are interested in that kind of work. And it's, it's a great thing to watch. One of the major accomplishments of the recruitment campaign is graduating the largest and most diverse group of women in the last three decades. Talk to us about how that happened and what it means and, and why is this important? Why is it so important for us to have a diverse workforce? The recruitment campaign as required under the settlement of the Vulcan lawsuit was about black and Hispanic firefighters. But once I took a look at it, it seemed clear to me that if the overall goal is diversity, that we should be looking at all of the places in which we are not that diverse, especially compared to the city. And so we expanded the definition of diversity for that campaign. Diversity makes organizations better. That diversity is race and gender, but it's not just race and gender. Those are reflections of differing life experiences. And I think that's really why diversity makes organizations better. It brings different life experience, different skill sets to the table. And I'd actually say if you broke down any firehouse, 
or any EMS station, you could see how those different skill sets were benefiting that group of people. Even if you said, you know, this person used to be a carpenter and this person used to be an accountant and this person used to be this, and you're seeing how they each bring a differing perspective to both the house or the station, but also the jobs they go on. I think when we talk about race and gender, the same thing is true. You know, you're bringing people with differing points of view to the table, and I think you get better decisions as a result. And I think that's especially true when you work for a diverse city. So if you're trying to meet the emergencies and the mission of the city for whom you serve, you know, having people from the city with those backgrounds is going to help you better meet that mission. And, you know, you see that in some really, um, what I'd say, simple but important ways when our members are in the field. When you have an EMT or a medic who's treating a patient in a neighborhood they live in or grew up in, then they speak the language that person speaks or they even know that person. You see how that patient is more at ease, potentially their care increases because what's going on is better understood by both people involved, and even sometimes their long-term trajectory when that person says, you know, Mrs. So-and-so really needs to be enrolled uh, with a home health care aide. That's why she's calling us every day. So I really think that the more we have people who have all sorts of backgrounds and really can understand communities they serve, it will make not only the city better, it makes our workforce feel, I think, better at their jobs or gives them some satisfaction about, you know, really understanding who they're serving and being able to help them that extra mile even past the initial 911 call. Let's talk about the Bureau of Fire Prevention. We know that they play a critical role in keeping New York City safe. And as anyone can imagine, in a city as large as New York, the process for making sure permits, certifications, and uh, building codes that they'd be properly met and is, is massive, right? That's a massive undertaking. And we know that the, our fire inspectors work incredibly hard. Um, recent reports show improvements on reducing wait times for inspections. Can you talk about some of these improvements and how that translates to the average New Yorker? What does it mean for them? So for the average New Yorker, it simply means they'll get a response faster. And that's what they need, especially following COVID. We want to get the city back on its feet. We all have an interest in that. Not only do we all live here and work here and love this place, but also we are funded by the city. So the city being in good economic times is just as important to the FDNY as to anyone else. So we want to help people get back on their feet, and that means fast turnaround times for building. And You know, I think the proof is in the numbers. We reduced the plan examination process time from 22 weeks to 6 weeks. FDNY reduced inspection turnaround time from 12 weeks to 6 weeks. Anybody looking at those metrics would say this is a dramatic improvement. Of course, enhanced customer service staffing to provide the applicants and the buildings with real feedback. Because if there are errors in these plans that have been submitted, without the feedback, they're not able to correct them. That adds to the long turnaround time and wait periods. Everything we've discussed so far is reliant on improved technology and innovation. And this has been a very important topic for you and something that you have had oversight of. Tell us about some of the different accomplishments on this front. We've done a lot of not only different IT projects, different innovation projects, but also just digitizing a lot of things. You know, making sure we have the data to be able to measure different programs is a big part of technology overhaul. If you need to measure a program, whether it be recruitment or fire prevention, 
you have to have the data stored somewhere. And in a lot of places in government, things are still on paper. So a lot of what we've done is setting up dashboards and, and making sure that data is available and is also being used properly. The reason it, I'm so passionate about it is I think, you know, the FDNY is the best and I think it deserves the best. And I think that's why technology has been such a, a passion project of mine is that if it's out there, we should have it. You know, to me, it's not just about having tech for the sake of tech. A lot of what we do can't ever involve technology. It's really about the human element. But can our people have the best phone that's out there? Can they have the best translation app that's out there? Can they have more situational awareness about what they're going into than they have now to make them safer? If it exists, I feel we should have it. And I often feel we should be leading or pushing the industry to make it, even if it doesn't exist, because I do think that where we go, so does all other fire departments. And so I've really tried to increase also our voice in saying, here's what should be developed. Because I think that if we say it should be, often people actually do follow. Mm. Is there any one particular initiative that you're most proud of on that front? I don't think there's any one thing. I actually just would say the thing I'm most proud of is I think that I have on some level gotten a number of people to share this belief. And I think that I have brought the uniform members in on building these things. And so it's actually less about any particular piece of equipment, but about a successful path for the future. You know, we need our people to tell us if something is working and mm -hmm. tell us what they need. Right. So bringing in the uniform members, they're the ones saying, here's what we need and developing something and testing it. That's actually what I'm most proud of. It's become part of the daily existence. Yeah. yeah, and I'm happy about that. I guess that's how you can really tell something's been successful. Yeah, and that it's useful because it wouldn't be part of the daily existence if right. it wasn't useful. I know you're an avid runner, and we've talked about this particularly as you've prepared for marathons. You have a very demanding job right now. It's been demanding in prior roles, but it's incredibly demanding now on your time, maintaining you're running and any other fitness practice. I still do get it in. I have not signed up. Like I didn't run the marathon this year and I haven't signed up for a major race since in March I did a half marathon. That's the last race I signed up for. And I will say I can tell the difference when I'm not running. I'm happy that it makes me healthy. It's not about health. It's about stress management. It's, it's a mental health management tool for me and always has been. I like to run and I feel better when I do. But I'm definitely still trying to figure out the rhythm of uh, this job and being a runner and finding, you know, finding time for yourself in general is, it's tricky, but I'm trying to figure it out. The FDNY Foundation Stair Climb is going to be on April 23rd, and we're putting together a team. So we're looking for folks to either join the team and help us raise money, or if you're not a big stair climber, you can contribute to the team. You can support us through a don donation to the foundation. I am doing that one, so I got to at least make it up and I know stories it's not in the, April. It's not the first stair climb you've done. No, thankfully it will in not be my, my first one. Yeah, I think that I have done, since I became first deputy, all of the stair climbs, which I'm very proud of. That is a very special event. You know, it raises money for our families, raises money for mental health, for first responders. And it's it's quite the experience. You know, the one you do at, at One World Trade, you start in the dark at four o'clock in the morning. And by the time you get to the top, the sun is coming up mm -hmm. over Manhattan at the top of the World Trade Center. And that means something. Yeah, it's quite significant, both as a New Yorker and a member of the FDNY. It's powerful. What other um, ways do you manage stress and keep a work-life balance? So I don't think there's work-life balance in this job. I don't think it's possible. It's 24-7, right? So I, it's not like I can say, you know, I'm turning my phone off. That is a non-option. So I don't want to call it balance. I think it's just about how do you manage because I do think that when 
you're the boss, you have a responsibility for trying to show up as a whole person every day. When you're not 100%, you're not giving the department 100%. So I think it's really just about managing not just stress, but just making sure that you're being taken care of day to day. And I think for me, which is something that I have in common with the fire department, I have a very, very strong network of friends and family. And they are really there for me. And I make time to see them um, because that is a place where I can let my hair down, talk about what's worrying me, get honest feedback, but who are also going to be there and hug me and support me no matter what's going on. So I, I try to make time for that because I think that's what makes sure that I'm showing up as myself every day. And I also like to cook. So a, a good meal with friends is, I think, about as good a time as you can get in life. And I definitely have that. Mental health is very important to me. Um, I've been very honest that I have been to therapy at different points in my life, especially when I was struggling with something that was really heavy. Mm -hmm. um, and I really encourage people to do that. As I often say to the members when we experience these tragedies, grief will catch up to you. Grief catches up with everybody. The question is just when and how, and will you see it coming? Being honest about the fact that these jobs are hard, that they do come with grief and stress and joy and pain and all of that. And just saying we all need help to get through it. And that might be different for everybody. And it's maybe different for me month to month what that might be. But just admitting that you're a human and you need those things and seeking them out is uh, the advice I'd make to everybody. Nobody's perfect. I look around at our members and many of you, I think, are the person in your life who has always been the one who's there for everyone else. And it's very hard for people like that to turn around and say, I also need help. So all of those experiences collectively make me passionate about helping people get help. Ultimately, what's your personal mission for being fire commissioner? My personal mission is to leave the fire department a little bit better than I found it. I actually think that should be the mission of all leaders. These are great places, and a great place can always be a little bit better. And I also think there is an obligation. It's such a special place. It is a family. You know, leave it in a better place than you found it and leave it with the next generation of leaders. You know, one of my hopes is to be able, when I leave, to say there is a whole pool of wonderfully talented, dedicated members of the FDNY ready to pick up the mantle, not just one. Anything that we haven't discussed that you want to add? I could talk forever about the FDNY. I think I'd just say, you know, it's a really, really special place, and I am forever grateful to be here. And I'm, like I said, I'm not I'm not sure I will ever get over that. And if there is a day I'm over it, that is the day that I will leave. Um, but I don't think I ever will quite get over how special it is. You know, that really is because of people like you and our members in the field. It's a thousand people who've passed along their love of the FDNY to me. So I'm forever grateful for that. It's a very very special place and it will certainly it has forever changed me well i wish you well i thank you for being here today thanks Liz. if you'd like to hear a previous conversation featuring commissioner kavanaugh tune into season five episode 59 on the covid19 crisis and the importance of forward planning with fdny first deputy fire commissioner laura kavanaugh thank you for listening to this episode of the fdny pro podcast I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.